This is The Great Composers, an intimate look at some of history's most brilliant musical minds from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. That's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill sitting at the Steinway in the CPR Performance Studio. I'm Carla Walker from CPR Classical. One of the things that we love to do here at Colorado Public Radio is go in-depth into pieces and composers. And for our first Great Composers feature, we want to go deep into Mozart, the man and the music. Scott O'Neill is the perfect person to help us because as a conductor, Scott has always been fascinated by not just the music, but by the personalities behind the music. Absolutely. I'm convinced that the music itself has an inherent aesthetic beauty to it. But when we understand the stories, uh, certainly in the case of the tumultuous life of Wolfgang Mozart, but also the context that the music was written, not only do we understand the music better, but the music, the individual pieces themselves sound more beautiful. And with Mozart, Scott, to understand his music, you have to go back Almost to the very beginning. Yeah, very young. We actually have an anecdote from when he was four years old. At the time, he had had a few lessons with his father, but his father had really been pouring uh, most of his attention and efforts into Mozart's older sister, Nannerl. But Mozart, being Mozart, was picking some of this stuff up, just observing it. So one day, Leopold comes home from work, and he sees little Wolfgang scribbling on a sheet of paper on the floor and asks him, what, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm writing a keyboard concerto. I'm almost finished with the first part. Really? Well, let, let me see. It's not finished yet. No, no, no. Let me see. And, you know, it was kind of in a made-up musical notation, but Leopold could figure out what he was getting at. And tears came to his eyes and he realized without any formal training his son had an innate understanding of composition and how music is put together at that moment he realized this truly was in his eyes a gift from god Leopold literally saw his role in training and promoting Wolfgang as a mission from God. Divine instructions. Absolutely. And he took it very seriously from that moment on. For the rest of his life, no doubt. That's Scott O'Neill playing Mozart's first known tune playing on the Steinway here in the CPR Performance Studio. And we're going to spend some time exploring how these little kernels that we see in Mozart when he is four and five years old eventually turn into something like this. This is the opening movement to Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 20 in D minor. And another kernel to come for Mozart is opera. Mm-hmm. 
Opera is definitely an area where Mozart left his mark. And so is the genre of the symphony. What he does in the final movement of his last symphony, number 41, where he creates a five-voice fugue is absolutely mind-blowing. So that's a little glimpse of Mozart's musical genius that we will be exploring in the coming chapters of our Great Composers series on Mozart. Suffice it to say, Mozart wrote in every genre of music, symphonies, concertos, operas, serenades, sacred, you name the genre, and he's written it. It's sometimes from commissions, sometimes from entrepreneurial ventures, and sometimes because he was assigned, but always from a place of inspiration. Scott, we play Mozart all of the time here on Colorado Public Radio. We tell lots of stories about Mozart, but yet I think it's difficult for most of us to get our hands wrapped around this idea of Mozart being a genius and exactly what makes him a genius. Talent and intelligence alone, it's just not enough. You know, my parents put a plaque in, in my bedroom when I was young. It said, what you are is God's gift to you. What you make of yourself is your gift to God. And I am certain that both Wolfgang and especially Leopold Mozart would have resonated with this. Mozart's genius, as we use the term, is undeniable. But so is the extensive training he received both from his father as well as from some of the greatest composers all over Europe as they traveled from city to city. But if you think about it, In some ways, all education at some level is self-education. So we also can't discount the hard work and the application that Mozart himself put himself through. So yes, it begins with inherent genius, but that is just the beginning. So we know him as Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, but he was actually baptized Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart. No Amadeus in that baptized name. No Amadeus, but Amadeus is another translation of Theophilus or even Gottlieb, but they all mean the same thing, loved by God or God's love. And I think this is particularly fitting from that occasion when Leopold came home and saw his son composing at the age of four. But that didn't mean sending the young Wolfgang to school, a traditional school like we think of today. Not so much. Uh, His father was the primary source for all of his education, and they were actually touring by the time he was seven. So here we are, late 1762, Salzburg, Austria, Mozart's six, approaching his seventh birthday. You know, we think of Salzburg as, wow, this beautiful European city, but when Mozart lived there, yeah, it wasn't the big musical center that he really needed. So his father, Leopold, knew he's going to make a splash. We need to get out. You've heard the phrase, go big or go home. They went big. They launched on a tour. And when I say they, I mean the entire family, including mom and sister, on a European tour that lasted three and a half years and saw 88 different cities. On this tour... 88 cities in three and a half years. He met the who's who of Europe. When he got to Vienna, 
He meets Maria Teresa, the empress. Story goes, he ran up, jumped on her lap, and in Leopold's words, put his arms round her neck and kissed her heartily. These are extraordinary experiences to be friends with Marie Antoinette, to run the halls of the big palaces of Europe. These are experiences that had to have shaped him in profound ways. Especially at this time. This is very early enlightenment. This was still aristocracy and peasants. And so here's seven-year-old Mozart thinking, hey, I rub elbows with the, the greatest people in the world. It definitely gave him a sense of his own importance, his own uniqueness. But it also taught him in a very real way, you know, he lost that fear of the aristocracy that just about everyone else had. So, Scott, here is young Mozart. He's seven years old, eight years old. He's running through the halls of the great palaces of Europe. He's meeting the great aristocracy of Europe. Why? What was the point of his father taking him to these palaces and meeting the aristocracy? Well, there are two sides of it from the aristocrat side. This was their only way to hear musicians that they employed and traveling musicians. And on the other side, if you want to make money, the best way to do it was to perform for the heirs. This was before, you know, public concerts were the main thing. This was still when the only people who really got to hear orchestras were aristocrats and their specially invited friends. And so when you would perform for them, they would give you a gift, maybe a snuff box that had coins in it. And this is how they were going to fund the tour. And Leopold actually had to take pretty severe loans out to embark on the tour. So this is how he's going to pay back his funders. But it also wasn't just meeting the aristocrats. This was also part of Mozart's training, meeting all the great Kapellmeisters, all the court composers throughout Europe. And when they eventually get to London, he actually meets Johann Christian Bach, you know, or as they called him, John Bach in mm-hmm. London at the time. And Who was a much bigger deal internationally than his father was, Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah, by then, you know, in some ways, both he and Carl Philipp Emanuel were benefiting from the Bach name. And he's working in the, the court of King George. Little Mozart comes up and the story goes, uh, and this is taken straight from Leopold's accounts, says he took Mozart on his lap and they played alternately on the same keyboard for two hours together, extempore, before the king and the queen. So imagine a, an eight-year-old Mozart sitting on the lap of a, a very small eight-year-old Mozart and a very large Johann Christian Bach, and he's sitting on his lap and they trade back and forth, improvising off of each other for the king and queen. early work by the very young Mozart for two harpsichord players, probably not unlike the music that the young Mozart sitting on J.C. Bach's lap would play as they improvise together. Today, we think of improvisation as kind of the realm of jazz music, and the way jazz musicians really grow is by playing with each other. Just the exposure to, if I do this, what are you going to do? It's not necessary that Johann Christian Bach took Mozart and gave him lessons in composition, but just being around him, hearing his compositions, improvising back and forth, 
with a genius like Mozart, all he needed was the exposure and the opportunity to unleash what he would later become. So the Mozart family, they're in London. Mozart is about eight at this point. And a near life-changing event happens. Yeah, all that traveling started to take its toll. Leopold became so sick, they were afraid he was on his deathbed. And the children were told, hey, you need to be absolutely quiet. No playing on the keyboard. Let your father rest. And Nannerl told the story years later. said, so to occupy himself, my brother composed his first symphony. I had to sit by him and copy it out. We can all relate, right? You know, your kids, <laughs> you need quiet. You tell your kids to go play. What do they do? They write a symphony. to the opening movement of Mozart's very first symphony, written in what we would consider now the kindergarten years. And even at this really early age, we can see glimpses of his compositional genius. And Scott's going to demonstrate from the piano for us. When he starts writing the second movement of this symphony, his sister, many years later, related in a letter, as he wrote and I copied, he said to me, remind me to give the horns something worthwhile to do. Well, when he gets to the second movement, it starts this way. But when we get to the end of that phrase, it modulates to here. And when we get here, you'll hear those horns play this. horn line, if I speed it up, this pattern translated much later and is the last movement of his last symphony became this. First symphony. Later became. Now, let me put this in context. An eight-year-old came up with the kernel, the inspiration in his first symphony that would be the same as the last movement of his last symphony 24 years later. Now, these aren't the only two times that Mozart used this idea, but for now, here is that idea in the second movement of his first symphony, eight years old. This is the Great Composers Podcast from Colorado Public Radio. 
I'm Carla Walker along with conductor, lecturer Scott O'Neill talking about Mozart and we've been exploring these very early years of Mozart and Scott, we know he's talented, we know he's on the road getting great training from some of the great composers, but what was he like? As a kid, what was he like? Everyone who met him said he's such a sweet, gentle spirit. Despite the challenges that his family faced while they were traveling, these really were the good years where the family was all together. They were very close. Uh, There's a story that before he would go to sleep every night, his father would pick him up, put him on this stool, Mm -hmm. and he would sing to him. One story says that he would sing whatever he wrote that day. Another story is that he sang the same thing every time. It was a piece that he wrote called Aranya Figa. So imagine, here's tiny little Mozart put up on a stool by his father, and he sings to him before he goes to sleep. Oranya figa taxa fa marina gamina fa. Oranya figa taxa fa marina gamina fa. Oranya figa taxa fa marina gamina fa. And he would kiss his dad on the nose, you know, told him he loved him, he wanted to keep him under glass and keep him forever. So the relationship between Wolfgang and his father was so close at this time. They, they really, it's a tender picture that's painted of, of the relationship between mm-hmm. them. Well, after three and a half years, 88 cities, the Mozart family finally returns to Salzburg as this very close-knit family unit, Mozart is 10. Yeah, Leopold realized it was a great experience for his son to be exposed to all these different composers in all these different cities. I mean, the creative stimulation of sitting on the lap of someone like Johann Christian Bach, all that's great. But in the end, what he needs now is more rigorous, fundamental training. So Leopold starts teaching him these piano pieces. There was a composer of the day by the name of Schobert, not Schubert. This is much earlier. And Leopold taught Wolfgang this piece by Schobert, the slow movement from Schobert's piano sonata, opus 17, number two. Let me demonstrate it for you. So Leopold would teach his son these piano sonatas, and then he would challenge him to turn them into piano concertos. Meaning for pianist and full orchestra. Exactly. So here is what Mozart did with Schobert's Opus 17, Number 2, to turn it into the slow movement of his own piano concerto number two. Thank you. 
That is the middle movement to Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 2, based on an earlier piano sonata by Schobert. I'm Carla Walker, along with Scott O'Neill, for our great composer special on Mozart here on Colorado Public Radio. And we're going to fast forward a little bit, Scott, to mm-hmm. when Mozart is 12. The Emperor sister in Vienna yep. is getting married. This is a huge deal. Absolutely. There is a commission to be had for an opera which would be a really nice feather in Mozart's cap, but there is a threat on the horizon. (laughs) Yeah, it was one thing when Mozart was seven and just blew through town, dazzling people with his keyboard and improvisation skills. But when he returned and he's 12 years old and now he's got a pushy dad demanding a commission for an opera, the composers living in Vienna uh, were not amused, to say the least. Wolfgang actually did get the commission, and he started working on the piece and was working with the singers. But these other composers living there started doing things like trying to uh, ruin the rehearsal schedules, tried to convince the singers to make demands that, oh, this doesn't fit my voice, and you have to rewrite this, and you know, threatened that if the performance went on that they would hire uh, planted audience members to boo and hiss and completely ruin the premiere. So let me just be clear about this. Mozart is 12 years old, and these adult, grown men, these composers, Mm -hmm. they're trying to sabotage a 12-year-old? Yeah, imagine being Mozart. I mean, your whole life, you've been told how sweet and charming you are, how intelligent and talented, and now the message you're getting from the adults is, welcome to the big league, boy. So that's an aria from La Finta Semplice, which was written for Vienna. But Leopold realized that it was too great of a risk to have a report of a failure for his son's first opera. So they canceled the premiere, and the opera wasn't staged until the Mozarts returned to Salzburg, and they finally got a full performance of La Finta Semplice. To put things in perspective, Mozart is about 14. It's the very end of 1769. And they're in Salzburg. They hadn't been in Salzburg for very long before Mozart and his dad set out on the road again, this time to Italy, the final frontier land of opera and the Vatican. Yeah, the Mozarts were actually very devout Catholics, so they made sure that they arrived at the Vatican during Easter. I almost feel like Leopold was planning this because he knew that there would be a piece by Allegri called the Miserere, which would be performed at Easter. Now, this was kind of a big deal. It was the prized possession of the Vatican. None of the performers were allowed to take music out. If you leaked it, so to speak, you could be excommunicated. The idea was that you could only hear this piece there. Well, Mozart's 14, walks in, hears it, thinks, wow, I really like that. Walked out and wrote it down 
from memory. Now, this is one of the famous stories about Mozart's kind of musical feats. This piece is like over 12 minutes long. As much as people think, wow, he could write stuff down from only hearing it, that's actually not the big deal to me. To me, it's a much more impressive feat of intelligence and musical memory because you got to realize he walked out and had to play the piece back in his mind so he could write it out. It would be like walking into a Shakespeare play, seeing a scene that takes more than 10 minutes, walking out and writing it down word for word. Now translate words into music. That's exactly what Mozart did. Let's listen to that piece that Mozart wrote down note for note. The Miserere by Gregorio Allegri. So that's part of Allegri's Miserere that Mozart copied out after hearing it only one time, and word got out that Mozart had this illegally. Uh, And so the question was, is he going to be excommunicated? That word got back to Salzburg. His mother and sister were worried. Leopold had to write a letter reassuring everyone that, look, not only does the Pope know, but it's brought great credit to Mozart. Rather than excommunicate him, the Pope actually knighted him into the Order of the Golden Spur, uh, which is a huge honor for someone this young. While he was in Italy, he was also attested by the Academy Philharmonica. A great way to start their trip to Italy and all these great accolades. But they were really in Italy for opera, right? For Mozart to write opera. Absolutely. And it wasn't long before he got his first commission to write the opera Mitridate. That is the aria Aldestin che la minaccia from the opera Mitridate by Mozart. Scott, thinking about Mozart's life to date when he's in Salzburg, there are so few musical opportunities for him there. He goes to Vienna, people there are trying to sabotage him. He goes to Italy, 
He gets admitted into this prestigious musical organization. He gets an opera commission. He gets knighted by the Pope. It just seems like there is opportunity around every corner for Mozart in Italy. Yeah, I mean, he was riding a huge wave of momentum. One opera commission became another, became another. In writing the opera Lucio Silla, he met one of the great Italian castrato. And to be clear, the castrati were men who, as boys, had certain private parts removed before their voice dropped so that their beautiful high voices would remain. And they were superstars in those days. Yeah, and it's almost, again, going back to Shakespeare, many times males played all the parts, so men would sing the soprano lines, and these were the castrati. Mozart met one of the great ones, and his voice so inspired Mozart that Mozart wrote what many consider to be kind of his first breakout masterpiece, Exultate Jubilate. I mean, I, I really think Mozart used this wave of momentum as inspiration, like the world is blossoming at his feet. And the text actually speaks to this kind of a spirit of a divine gift. The singer sings, quote, let the heavens sing forth with me. A modern-day performance with soprano of Mozart's Exultate Jubilate, which he originally wrote for a male castrato, considered by many to be Mozart's first great masterpiece. Scott, you've been talking about Mozart's talent, his training, his hard work. It all seems to come together in this piece. Yeah, it's kind of the culmination of an amazing story. Talented boy, tours Europe, meets all the great composers, gets formal training from his father. It's almost as if a divine hand truly was guiding this. And Leopold believed this in his heart of hearts. He actually wrote, if ever I have an obligation to convince the world of this miracle, it is precisely now when people ridicule anything that is called a miracle and deny the existence of miracles. We should say, Scott, that the Mozart family had their fingers crossed that after all this success Wolfgang was having in Italy that he would be offered a great job so that they could all pick up and move to Italy. And it almost happened and most likely would have, but... Maria Theresa, the empress? Now remember, this is the same woman that when Mozart was a little child, he sat on her lap and as his father said, kissed her heartily. Yeah, that's the same one. She's the one who sabotaged his position. But he's in Italy, she's in Austria, she sabotaged him? Yeah, her son, Ferdinand, had become the Archduke in Milan, and he wanted to hire Mozart to be a Kapellmeister in his court. When he asked his mom what she thought, she said, well, I don't know why you want to surround yourself with composers and other useless people like that, and referred to the Mozart family as people who go about the world like beggars. So mom's view of Wolfgang went from dazzling, precocious child to useless beggar. More storm clouds are ahead for Wolfgang, more people with power and influence over him, plant obstacles in his path, 
and test how ingenious he can be in getting around them. We'll explore that next time. Head to CPR.org to find a Spotify playlist with the music in this episode and a timeline of Mozart's life. The great composers wrote some of the most powerful music ever. They were geniuses, but they were also humans with stories of struggle, heartache, and triumph. This podcast is about understanding their point of view to connect you more deeply with their incredible music. Each episode features stories, music, and insights illustrated on the piano in the CPR Performance Studio. And if you like this podcast, explore other podcasts from CPR Classical, the Beethoven 9 at 9, a look at Beethoven's life through his nine symphonies, and Centennial Sounds, featuring Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. Find these at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Great Composers was conceived and written by Scott O'Neill with assistance from me, Carla Walker. It was produced by John Pino, Martin Skavish, with help from Richard Ray. Editing consultant, Cindy Carpian. Brad Turner is our digital editor with help from Leslie Smale. The executive producer is Monica Vischer. I'm Carla Walker. And I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>